Well, Susan Runner mentioned that we have an auction coming up on November 3rd. And um, one of the really fun things about the auction for me each year is that um, it, it gives me a chance to um, sell myself, really, to the highest bidder. Um, for a couple of years, people could purchase a whole platform address from me. And then this past year, we, um, we decided to try something different and invited people to bid on just one word. So three words were actually purchased at the auction last year, and my charge was to, to explore each of those words together in a platform. And that's what this platform address is today, looking at those words that were chosen and purchased last year. So what I'd like to do is talk a little bit about what those three words, what the choices of those three words say about us. Then I'm going to explore each word on its own. And then I want to think a little bit about what we say about those words. What do we as ethical culturists, we in this congregation, say about the words? Or at any rate, what I say about them. You can add what you say about them during our community sharing time. So the words. This year, the words chosen were sustainability, compromise, and amen. I actually think that those three words point to kind of three pillars of who we are or what we think about here at the Ethical Society. Sustainability is all about justice work, about care for the earth. It gets to how we act in the world, and we know that that idea of action and deed, justice is a core part of ethical culture, right? I think actually Barry and Ellen said it so beautifully. They talked about deed before creed. You know, that, that that's part of who we are, how we want to act. So that concept of sustainability starts to refer to that principle of ethical culture. The second word is compromise. And to me, that's a word about relationship, about being in ethical relationship with each other, how we are in the world. I want to note that the word originally offered by the purchaser of compromise was actually fungus. So um, I think we're probably all glad that they compromised on that and we're not talking about fungus, although maybe there's a, a really rich metaphorical meaning there. And believe me, if you want, I could find it. Um, but, I, but I don't have to. You're so glad. And then finally, the third word chosen was Amen. And to me, that speaks to our exploration of religious language and the religious idiom. You know, for the most part, ethical culture has not been as interested in sort of the reclamation of religious language as we see in other religious progress, progressive religious traditions. But we still know that we swim in a world awash with religious language, awash with kind of religious stories and metaphors. And so I would say that it's incumbent upon us as citizens of that world to know what it is that we're talking about or not talking about, to know what those words mean that we either choose to use or don't. So what are we talking about here anyway with these three words? Well, with all of the words, I, I started with what many of you know is my original source for most information, Wikipedia. When I, when I um, 
first came to Wes, I actually gave a platform about how I thought Wikipedia was the perfect medium for a progressive religious tradition because it's a kind of knowledge that's built by all of the people there, just the way, again, the way Ellen and Barry, who really set me up so beautifully with the candle lighting this morning. Thank you both. I can't find Barry, but thank you. Um, the way they talked about sort of searching for our own meaning here, searching for our own answers and creating that meaning together. That's so much part of who we are as a, as a religious tradition. And, um, and that's sort of who Wikipedia is as an online uh, definition source as well. So I, I turned to Wikipedia to figure out exactly what sustainability meant. And here's part of what I got. Here's how it began. Sustainability is the capacity to endure through renewal maintenance and sustenance or nourishment in contrast to durability, the capacity to endure through unchanging resistance to change. So I think, you know, I think of sustainability as that kind of, um, of staying through, and I was really interested to see that the definition included a kind of adaptation right within it. So I wanted to delve a little bit deeper, and I think when many of us think about sustainability now, you know, kind of as it's used in modern lingo or modern conversation, we think of it as part of the concept of sustainable development. You know, I, even when I introduced it at the beginning, I talked about sustainability as linked to environmental work and justice work, and that's how many of us know it. That concept, or one of the first articulations of it, actually came from the Brundtland Commission of the United Nations on March 20th, 1987. And here's what that commission said, how they described sustainable development. They said sustainable development is development that meets the needs of the present without compromising the ability of future generations to meet their own needs. So you begin to see there an idea of sustainability as being about both who we are now and who we want to be now, and also looking toward the future. Again, that idea of sort of of adaption and um, adaptation and change moving through. But it's not just any kind of adaptation or change, right? So, and, and there is an element, I think, of, of things continuing the same. So I went back to the original meaning of, uh, or the, the etymology of sustainability, which comes from the Latin sustenera, or sus and tenera, to, to hold, tenera, to hold, and sus, up, to hold up. And you think about things that sustain us, about the concept of sustenance or nourishment, things that, that hold us up and that, that help us to endure through change. Sustainability, though, goes further, I think, toward a sort of a really positive goal. And I want to I continue that thread that started at the 1987, um, oh, I'm going to get the word wrong, Brundtland Commission, um, to, to something much more recent in the 2005 World Summit, which talked about sustainability requiring the reconciliation of, there, there are three things here called the three E's, environmental, that's one of them. Social equity, because of the ease in equity, not social, because you always want three of the same thing. So environment, social equity, and economic demands. The three pillars they described of sustainability. And here I think you really get to the heart of what we're often talking about when we talk about sustainability. That, that we're looking for something that meets a variety of different needs at the same time. There's actually a great visual around sustainability and sustainable development, which is like a, a Venn diagram. You know, a Venn diagram is circles that overlap and you're looking for the thing in the center, usually. 
And so you can see those three spheres overlapping with each other. The environmental sphere, what, what serves the environment well, what protects the environment. The social equity sphere, so what serves people well. And then the economic sphere, what works within a market and works economically. And right in the center of those three spheres, that's where you find sustainability or sustainable development. Sustainability is now a very hip. There's a school of sustainability at Arizona State University. You can get a master's in sustainability management at COGOOD. DC has an office of sustainability under the banner Sustainable DC, where they're talking about all the things you might expect if you're looking at the intersection of those three spheres. Bike lanes that you know, don't annoy the cars too much, but make the bikers happy and decrease pollution. All of the things that make the city more livable. Even Walmart has a sustainability office. You know, I think it's easy to laugh at that idea, Walmart, sustainable, but the truth is that it's, if we want the world to move towards sustainable development in a sustainable direction, it's things like Walmart and national legislations that will, you know, bind into the idea of sustainability that will get us there. I know when I originally think about sustainability, my mind tends to go toward the environmental factor, but it's really about people, too. In some of the research that I did, um, one of the things I found was that poverty is one of the key limiting factors um, to being able to achieve sustainability because poverty creates environmental degradation. The conditions of, living, of people living in poverty create um, sort of intense factors for environmental degradation. So you see, again, those three spheres coming together, the environment, people, and economic demands as well. There's been a lot of buzz and continuing kind of interest in the idea of self-sustaining communities. Sometimes that's back to the land. Sometimes it's bioregional economies, communities that try to either produce or find close at hand everything that they need to sustain themselves. And then I, I want to offer one other definition, which is from the EPA, actually. And I, I liked the way they said it. Um, and I think that it, it connects to that idea of self-sustaining communities. They say, sustainability is based on a simple principle. Everything that we need for our survival and well-being depends, either directly or indirectly, on our natural environment. Sustainability creates and maintains the conditions under which humans and nature can exist in productive harmony. I love that phrase, productive harmony. Remember that economic development and economics is part of that sustainability sphere. So it can't be uh, unproductive. Productive harmony that permit fulfilling the social, economic, and other requirements of present and future generations. For me, that definition got at a lot of the different pieces that we looked at. The idea of sustainability, about connecting what we want to be now with what we want our children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren to experience. And then again, the, the idea of multiple spheres coming together. My final word, I think, on sustainability is that for me, you know, although we, we almost always think now, I think, of sustainability as this sort of global phenomenon, you know, um, sustainable development globally or at least nationally, that there's an element of sustainability that's about our personal lives as well. And I think in the same way, we can look for kind of the spheres that come together to allow us to find sustainability in our own lives. I think, frankly, many folks who work for justice on the national or local or global stage struggle with that sense of sustainability, finding balance in their lives when there's so much 
work to do, right? And, and we all know activists who end up kind of burned out and um, unable to move forward with, with, with joy. And so I think for me, you know, taking that, that global concept of sustainability and bringing it into who we are and how we approach our own lives is something that can be really valuable as well. So I want to move in that vein to the next word, which is compromise, which is something that we think of much, much more specifically as about our own lives, as about relationship and how we talk with each other. And we'll turn again to Handy Wikipedia, who says this. To compromise is to make a deal between different parties where each party gives up part of their demand. In arguments, compromise is a concept of finding agreement through communication. Sounds like a nice way, doesn't it? Through a mutual acceptance of terms, often involving variations from an original goal or desire. Now, Wikipedia goes on a little bit, and I'm going to return to the second half of what Wikipedia says in a minute. But first, I want to look at the original use of the term compromise and where it comes from. Again, it's a Latin term, and it comes from um, com, which means with, and promettere, which means promise. So it means making a promise with or making a mutual promise. It's interesting to me that in that word, there's no... Um, there's no reference really to giving up to that kind of tit-for-tat demand that we think of now with compromise, just making a promise with. But the modern usage of the word compromise comes from um, Middle French and later Latin, uh, and, and it actually originally meant a mutual promise, promising with, a mutual promise to refer to arbitration. Isn't that interesting? Not a mutual promise of coming together of our, you know, our own desires through communication, but making a mutual promise to both abide by the decision of an arbiter, having a third party who tells you, you know, kind of what the, what the deal is and deciding together that you'll listen to that third party. It was really intriguing to me that the original definition came to that sort of um, following someone else's decision. And I wonder if it helps us to explain a little bit some of the more complicated meanings that are associated with compromise, or maybe the more, the more complicated way that we tend to look at that concept. Because here's the thing, right? Compromise has positive and negative connotations. Um, and, and I'm not going to talk too much about the really negative ones, which is the idea of sort of compromising oneself, you know, being in a compromising situation. But that's, you know, there, there's not a lot of positive there. That's really kind of a negative piece. The, the more positive one is that idea of coming to an agreement together. But what I would argue is that that positive connotation in our culture is actually not that positive when you get right down to it. The concept of compromise is sometimes seen as kind of everyone losing something. Presumably everybody wins something as well, but we tend to hate losing more than we like winning. So I think often that's the, uh, that's the, the, the sort of salient feature for us of compromise. If we go back to that Wikipedia entry that I originally quoted, it continued in a much more negative vein. In the negative connotation, it said, compromise may be referred to as capitulation, referring to a surrender of objectives, principles, or material in the process of negotiating an agreement. In human relationships, compromise is frequently said to be an agreement that no party is happy with. This is because the parties involved often feel that they either gave away too much or that they received too little. 
Now, that definition doesn't exactly make me feel as though I want to compromise. If it's just the agreement where everybody gives up something and feels really unhappy at the end. And there's a whole school of thought within communication theory and kind of relationship theory that would try to get us actually not to compromise. Um, nonviolent communication is, is a kind of communication and, and really sort of a framework for looking at the world that many folks are familiar with. I want to quote an, an NBC practitioner, Lachelle Lochard, who says, compromise means you give up some of what you want and I give up some of what I want and we both feel equally disappointed kind of a resonance with that, with that negative um, understanding. She goes on, though. In the consciousness of nonviolent communication, or NVC, compromise is unnecessary suffering. Instead, NVC rests on the premise that all needs can be met. This is based on the experience of connection in which a natural giving arises from the heart. End quote. So the idea there, I think, the idea in NBC where really compromise is seen as um, not, a good, uh, not a good end result of a conversation and not a necessary end result. Um, the idea is that if we can hear another person's needs really deeply, if we can get to the heart of what it is that they need in a particular situation, that our own needs may shift. And we find ourselves then in a place of really wanting to fill different needs. Being able to to clearly articulate and identify all of the needs gives us the ability to look at those needs together and to come to a mutually satisfactory rather than a mutually disappointing way of approaching the situation. Um, There was a great... um, a great example, actually, from Perry Bider, our board president, a couple of years ago when the board did some NVC training. And, um, and he talked about um, that his understanding was that using NVC tools, you know, here you are in what seems like a, um, a situation where nobody is going to be perfectly happy. You're in a room, and um, one person is really hot, and one person's really cold. And, um, and so if you open the window to, uh, to make the hot person more comfortable, the draft coming in is uncomfortable for the other person. So you know, what do you do? You, have to, you open the window a crack, then the hot person's still hot, the other person's still a little bit cold, everybody's a little bit unhappy. That would be the compromise version. Using NDC, um, as Perry kind of imagined it, you might realize, you might kind of articulate those needs a little bit better, look at the whole situation and the needs of everybody there, and realize that you could open a window in another room, bringing more circulation of air into the room without causing a draft for the person who was feeling cold. So it's that idea of kind of a third way, a way that isn't um, people giving up their demands, but, um, but finding something that speaks um, well to each one of us. I'm looking at Perry to make sure that... Do you remember saying that, Perry? I have no recollection. No, no recollection. <laughs> so see, he can't, he can't say that I'm wrong. Um, either. So, um, so the question, I think, is whether this idea of compromise really is kind of a, a selling out of our own needs if it's just a path to disappointment, uh, and if we might be able to find a sense of deeper connection that gets us to a third way that's not that, that letting go of what we need. But what if we can't compromise not because we want a deeper connection with each other, but because we don't want a connection at all? The folks who purchased this word passed along with the word, and not the word fungus, happily, um, a New York Times article by Cheryl Gay Stolberg 
from August 14, 2011. It was an article about the Debt Super Committee, and, um, and it was uh, ahead of their decision, so it was kind of wondering whether they would be able to come to agreement, whether they would be able to find a compromise. Spoiler alert. <laughs> Didn't really work out so well. <clears throat> But this article took the idea of the debt super committee and explored it a little bit more in terms of kind of American, um, American culture. And whether, because all these Americans were saying, oh, well, you know, these, these people really need to come to a compromise. We want the debt super committee to compromise. And what the author of the article posited was actually, we didn't really want them to compromise because we don't want anybody to compromise. Because we're holding on to that, you know, that concept of compromise as negative as giving up. And we don't feel like giving up a darn thing. The idea in the article was that Americans increasingly, and I see this too, I wonder if you do, have self-segregated themselves into churches or friendship groups or neighborhoods, now even uh, electoral districts where the majority of the people in that area are like-minded. So there's a sense of kind of hanging out with the people who think like you. One of the things that the article talked about was that political activism is actually much higher in those areas where folks are like-minded because it's challenging to be politically active in a diverse environment. It's challenging to have to talk to your neighbors about things that you might disagree with. And I think, you know, many of us who live in Maryland are are in the midst of some kind of ballot decisions and figuring out how to talk to people who, who think differently than we do. How do you have those conversations? They're awkward. They're uncomfortable. And, um, and so, by and large, Americans don't have them. They self-segregate so that they're within communities um, that think like themselves. And, the article went further, people don't want to give things up. In the market, the author pointed out, we have the economic market, we have so many choices now of things that are just perfect for us. You know, if you go on Amazon, you can find the shoe you want in blue, in the size you want, and the heel the heel height you want. I just saw an advertisement for a shoe that you could get in any heel height. I don't even understand how that's possible. How can they make a shoe in any heel height? But they do, and you can buy it. Um, and so that experience in, in sort of the consumer market has meant that Americans have, have lost the ability to figure out what, it, what it's like to not get exactly what you want. I'm reminded, actually, of something that I said a couple of weeks ago in a platform when I was talking about iChurch, about sort of the, the technology, you know, all of the devices we have that provide ex- exactly the, the user interface we're looking for. We can watch that TV show at any time and pause it wherever we like, and we don't have to you know, worry about getting home at 8 o'clock for it. In the same way, this was quoting a, a minister in the area, um, you know, we, we want iChurch, we want our religious community to look just the same, to be the content that we want available to us in exactly the way we want it, with the ability to hit pause or fast forward. Um, I'm really glad you guys don't have remotes right now. Um, so, um, so, you know, sort of we... If that's our interaction with the world, then when we're struggling with some of these hard conversations and hard issues, the the article really asked whether we had an inclination, a desire to come to uh, compromise. Forget about deeper connection in a third way and opening the window in in the next room. Will we even have the conversation about whether the window should be cracked or will somebody just get up and, you know, leave the meeting? Um, There was a a quote there um, about that idea of market from the article. If Americans don't want to compromise in buying sneakers, why would they make trade-offs in politics? 
Um, so, so all of those things kind of go through my mind as I think about compromise, whether it's positive or negative, and, um, and whether we refuse to even, even get to the level of compromise, um, uh, let alone the, the sort of deeper connection that might be possible beyond that. The third word that was chosen was amen. I think when I wrote the little um, description for this platform address in the, uh, in, in the program and on the website, um, I listed the words. I said sustainability, compromise, and then in little parentheses, gasp, amen. I like to prepare you a little bit for words like that. You're all doing really well so far. Good job. Um, and, and, you know, I think that's because for us, amen is a, is a really loaded word, right? It feels like a, a particularly religious word and a word within a particular religious tradition. So I wanted to explore this a little bit. And actually, when the word was, was um, suggested to me, I did not know the etymology. I didn't know what it meant exactly. And I was surprised to discover it's from Hebrew. You know, it's, it's found most commonly um, in, the, in the Hebrew Bible, or that's what we're most familiar with it. Um, although there are cognates, very similar words in Greek, in Latin, in Syrian, in Arabic. Um, and the original meaning of the word is certainly. It means certainly, truly. So, um, there's a, as, I, as I kind of dug in and tried to figure out you know, all of these cognates, how, how many places in the world used a word like amen, there was kind of a bummer for those of us who liked the Da Vinci Code. Um, uh, this is a quote, again, from Wikipedia. Popular among some theosophists. Theosophists, I had to look that word up. Um, theosophists are, are people who are interested in the study of esoteric religion, so sort of, uh, you know, who like the Da Vinci Code, and they want to find out, and the painting, and you go to the little room, and, oh, you're Jesus. So, um, okay, so popular among some theosophists. Um, proponents of Afrocentric theories of history and adherents of esoteric Christianity is the conjecture that Amen is a derivative of the name of the Egyptian god Amun, which is sometimes also spelled Amen. Some adherents of Eastern religions believe that Amen shares roots with the Hindu Sanskrit word Aum, or, you know, Aum, right? Wouldn't that be cool? That would be so cool if it were connected to the Egyptian god and also the Sanskrit word. It's not true. Um, <laughs> sorry. There's no academic support for either of these views. The Hebrew word, as noted above, starts with um, Aleph. That's the, the first letter. Uh, while the Egyptian name begins with a Yod. I don't, I don't know what a, I know what Aleph is. Actually, you know, alphabet Aleph, it's the first letter. Um, I don't know what Yod is, but it's not Aleph. And apparently there's no relationship. So that was the bummer part of this um, research. I thought it would be really cool if we found out that all religions had the exact same root, but they don't. Um, but I was still surprised to discover that amen meant truly. And I wonder if any of you were surprised too. I had the sense that it would be something more religious, that it would talk about God or that it would talk about um, uh, even a personal religious experience. But, you know, I, I, I'm real. I understand that when we're talking about amen, we mean how it's used in the Bible. And so I wanted to look a little bit more closely at where it's used in the Bible uh, and, and kind of what meaning it's taken on. Things can mean all sorts of things originally, but what's important is the, the meaning that they're freighted with as well. So biblically, it's essentially used to mean a variant of truly or certainly. It means so be it. So let it be, may it be so, so be it. 
And it's used mostly in the Hebrew Bible, or what some folks um, call the Old Testament. Uh, There are not that many instances, although there are some in Christian scripture, what we might call the New Testament. Um, And it's used, in the Hebrew Bible, it's used primarily in liturgical passages, especially shared liturgy. So in songs or in prayers that were all said together and that were kind of prescribed to be said together and had a prescribed response from the corporate body um, used in kind of corporate worship or corporate celebration. You know, corporate like the whole body, not like IBM's worship or celebration. (laughs) Some of you have heard me say that when I was in seminary, my father, who was like a little bit unsure about ministry and all of that, um, uh, heard I was taking a class called Introduction to Corporate Worship, and he was so excited because he actually thought that I might have a career in the corporate world, and that maybe there was like a real need for ethicists, at, you know, these, which there is, I'm sure, but um, he was really a little sad to discover that no, it's just about people together, actually, not so, um, so, so amen, and he's okay now, you, you know. You guys have seen him come here. He's just hunky-dory. Um, so, uh, so amen is used in that corporate sense and the idea of all the people together. It's a word that's used in some ways kind of practically to bind people together, to invite participation as a group together in the ritual that's going on and the song that's being sung or the celebration that's being shared. So that makes me think about when I am most moved to use the word amen. It's a word that I have a relative amount of comfort with. And I use it most in interfaith settings, particularly at like a citywide meeting of the Washington Interfaith Network. We're a member of that network, and some of you have been to those citywide meetings. You know there's amens running all over the place. Sometimes, actually, at the end of prayers, if they're trying to be really interfaith, which is great, they use the variants of amen. So amen. Amin, which is used within the Muslim tradition. Ashe, which is used within African-American Protestant tradition, particularly Afrocentric Protestant tradition. And then, adding on for good measure, may it be so. So, you know, it's maybe a little redundant, but it's, it's another way, I think, to create a sort of binding together of a group of people. And for me, what I realized as I was thinking about that corporate use in the Hebrew Bible, that that's really how I use it. When I feel moved to say amen, it's because I want to show my support to the group that I'm with. And in an interfaith setting, amen is often a way to be able to do that. And of course, it's used colloquially, colloquially uh, within some cultures um, and sort of linguistic traditions as well. You know, hey, that was a really great movie. Amen. It was awesome. Um, you know, so, so again, it's a sense of kind of sharing solidarity with other people. And for me, that's what's been most important about it. It's been a way of being in relationship with other people. So those are our three words, com- uh, sustainability, compromise, and amen. And I want to say just quickly what, what we say about these words at the Ethical Society. Um, Sustainability, I think, has been one that's been very important to us. Some of you know that the Washington Ethical Society endorsed the Earth Charter a few years ago. Uh, That charter, um, which is a kind of international charter that lots of organizations have signed on to, calls for a sustainable global society founded on respect for nature, universal human rights, economic justice, and a culture of peace. Those are big dreams on on sort of the, the... 
small level, that means things like our Earth Ethics team working to green west uh, in ways big and small, and things like our solar panel project, which I'm excited to tell you the board just approved and signed a power purchase agreement for. So in the next couple of months, you'll see some solar panels going up there. And to me, that's a real indication of, you know, that's a sustainable development initiative. It provides a modest economic incentive for people who invest in the model. It provides, um, uh, you know, obviously an environmental uh, impact through um, heating electricity that doesn't come uh, from coal out of West Virginia. And um, I, mean, I actually didn't come up with a social equity one, but they're fun and we have fun doing them together, so I guess that's good too. So that idea of sustainability is, I think, important and alive at West. I think about compromise and sort of that interesting conversation about compromise versus going deeper to meet needs. I know that NVC, nonviolent communication, is important to a lot of West folks, that there's resonance there with ethical culture and the idea of kind of uniqueness, allowing for the differences and different needs among us. Um, and, and that concept of coming to agreements, whether it's the deeper connection, sort of third-way agreement, or whether we see compromise as something that is a positive attribute, that it's something that two people come together and are able to come to, to a third solution. Either way, that idea of a, coming to agreements um, that honor people's different perspectives is key to West. It's one of the things that we teach how to do in our adult education classes, um, including our Flourish classes. Um, uh, which you can sign up for right outside after platform. And then, and then amen. Now, don't worry. I'm not about to suggest that we should all say amen at West. Every congregation and religious tradition has a culture of its own. But I do remember a platform I gave a couple of years ago that was about religious language and sort of about being open to hearing other people's language, to, to listening for and wanting to, and being curious about the language that's meaningful for other people. What I remember is that in the community sharing time, two people had a very simple response, which was they took the microphone and said, amen. <laughs> I think what that says to me is that we get on some level that this kind of language is meaningful for folks, to our loved ones, our coworkers, our neighbors, the people alongside whom we fight for justice, and sometimes meaningful to some of us that it behooves us to know what it means to figure out what we simply can't say with integrity, what might not come naturally, but, but what we can say in the right circumstances. I'd love another time to explore the concept of prayer, but the simplest way to think about a prayer is as a wish or a hope. So saying amen, so be it, at the end when somebody else is praying is a way to, to tell them that we share their hope, whether or not we share the theology with which they hope it. Religious language can definitely divide us. All language can divide us, actually. But I also think it can connect us. It can provide that kind of solidarity that I feel when I say amen at an interfaith gathering. And we can take our language too seriously. So I think it's important for us to remember to listen for the ideas, the thoughts, the emotions behind the words. And to remember that words only go so far. So I want to close with a quote from Ralph Waldo Emerson that we would all do well to heed. Thought is the blossom, language the bud, action the fruit behind it. And so in that vein, I'm going to invite our course director, Bailey Whiteman, to finish out our platform with song, a song which both of us actually know is from the My Fair Lady and not um, the King and I. Thank you very much.
We appreciate everybody letting us know about that, and um, we know too. Um, so to share with us a song which is perhaps an antidote to too many words. <laughs> 